Hi everybody, it's John here. Uh, this is what they call a cold open in the business, I do believe. Uh, thanks for joining me on Anchor. This is the new home of the TJ podcast. Uh, we've moved here because uh, the distribution is slightly better and uh, we're bringing ourselves in line with the rest of the titles in the Dodds portfolio for some uh, strategic podcast business uh, for 2021 and beyond. So very exciting. Anyway, uh, that's enough of that. It's the same great content in the TJ podcast. Cue the drums. And on the TJ podcast this month, uh, John and Kate catch up about not a great deal of news, but uh, coming out of lockdown, the prevalence of psychological safety and a few other goings on from around the world of Fosway. And then Joe joins in to talk about the content from this month and what we've got coming up next. It's all very improvised, which makes a lot of sense because our guest this month is Max Dickens, stand-up comedian, facilitator and improviser about the power of improvisation and creativity in business. This is the TJ podcast for November. First, as always, let's kick off with the news. It's my pleasure to welcome once again Fosway Group's Kate Graham. What is going on in your world? Well, what isn't going on at the moment? It's uh, it's all happening. So thanks for having me, as always. It's been um, interesting times here as we've launched the Talent and People Success Nine Grid. So bye-bye to traditional talent management structures um, and processes um, and welcoming in a new era. And, you know, nothing good ever came easy. It's been quite interesting um, getting the feedback on that. So some people see it as a real positive. Um, You know, we would say that traditional talent management is always focused on, you know, a select bunch of high potentials or high performers and the, like the top 250, things like that. Um, but actually, with the impact of COVID has kind of accelerated the need for talent to include everybody. Um, and organisations, if they want to be more agile and more responsive, which I think everybody would agree that they need to be in these turbulent times, um, you know, you need to be able to move quicker through your processes so you know the the old kind of old school traditional succession planning and things like that you know they're just going to fall by the wayside as people need to be able to kind of move around the organization more quickly so you know these notions of things like internal talent marketplaces um, be able to kind of co-op people onto projects as and when you need them um you know things are changing there and it's been interesting to see both the good and the not so good uh, comments on the research that we've put out there. But it's, you know, it's a sign of the times that things are being disrupted left, right and centre. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly uh, a, a significant period of change and this is ongoing. I mean, we, there's a, change happens all the time. It's not it's not just uh, been uh, constrained to 2020, but uh, this is certainly a good time to look at how businesses are changing and their requ- and the, the, their requirements are changing for the workforce, um, for talent, for learning, for everything really. Uh, so lots of interesting things going on there. Also, uh, you're based in Cardiff. How does it feel coming out of uh, the fire break? Is it any different? Do you feel better or freer? I think- it really hasn't made much difference to me. Um, so schools have, have stayed open here. Obviously, we had half term, um, and you know, obviously, kids clubs, so football, rugby, all of that kind of stuff, is has obviously stopped during fire break. 
Um, but you know, our local um, cafes and things have been doing takeaway. So, you know, we've been getting out and trying to support those, but no, it doesn't really massively feel that much different. I don't think I ever kind of fully came out of the first lockdown, um, to be honest. So just trying to sort of stay local and, um, you know, yeah, just stay healthy and stay safe, really. So I know I know everybody in England is obviously sort of a bit behind us, but it, it, it hasn't felt that different because we've been in local lockdown for at least sort of six or seven weeks anyway. So it, it almost feels like I'm, I can't go, you know, I haven't been able to go anywhere for so long. You know, it's just making your own fun on your doorstep, really, and embracing what you've got, which isn't a bad thing. Yeah, um, I think people have shown themselves to be incredibly resourceful and have done for months now. And uh, I hope that continues. Um, we can think about the carbon footprint footprint of everyone, which is which is improving, uh, mm-hmm. which is great, you know. But um, there's also, uh, well, essentially, Kate, I've come to this section of the podcast not really having any news. Have you got any news? Uh, not any, not any specific news. No, it's it's kind of like I said, we we've been dealing with the kind of the the um, impact of um, you know some some new research that we've put out there and answering a, a lot of questions about that and about what the future looks like. And I think we're going into that kind of slightly reflective end of year mode now as well um, across the piece you know a lot of vendors are talking to us about you know how to sort of sum up the year and 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 how they want to talk to people about that and already looking ahead to kind of what's coming to 2021 a lot of people will be sitting down doing their budgets about now um, so trying to think about what's worked this year what do they need more of next year you know that picture will look very very different so I think it's almost a period of yeah reflection and thinking about what's ahead rather than necessarily what's going on in the now yeah i agree um most of the big events that you know and have heard about um are moving online or postponing so nothing new there um acquisitions have quietened down for a little bit and like you say it's more about reflection and just generally businesses looking forward to um a more prosperous and less turbulent and more and that's ridiculous 2021 uh so that's good a couple of quick things before we uh we go uh tj the tj podcast is moving to anchor which is a podcast platform which has been uh which was acquired last uh, couple of years ago i think actually by spotify uh the reasons for that being that uh it's got a bit more weight behind it um in terms of distribution we're now on not only are we on spotify itunes amazon and audible we're also on breaker yeah, I don't know what that is. Uh, Radio Public and Google Podcasts. So it's a little bit better and easier for distribution. Um, and also the other podcasts in the Dodds portfolio uh, are, have moved to Anchor as well. So we're kind of trying to put together a more portfolio-wide strategy for the podcast, which is going to be interesting, sort of linking up what everyone's doing. Um, so that's the reasoning behind moving to Anchor. Um, but I thank everybody for all their support on SoundCloud over the last three years. And we've really built a good following and i uh, got an incredible library of audio, really, um, which people can still listen back to. Uh, yeah, 100%. At the moment, that's not going anywhere. I might close SoundCloud down, but it's all on Anchor. The, the entire archive of something like 260 podcasts and audio interviews is all there on Anchor for people to listen to. So that's cool. Um, and one last thing before we go. One thing, we haven't got any news to talk about, but one thing I have been noticing on just browsing around Twitter is the... 
uh, increase in the term psychological safety. Have you noticed that? I think it's, it's a term that I've been aware of for quite a while, um, but I think in the um, rise of the focus on well-being um, and mental health, I have seen it a lot more, yes. Mm. Yeah, me too, in, in, certainly in L&D circles, and I think this is about people recognising, after a few months of having been uh, a remote worker and organising a life around, well, the house, your family, um, not really having a separate place to work for a lot of people, uh, psychological safety has come to the fore while, as people understand how to get the best out of uh, yourself and how to make proper and meaningful divisions between your work and your home life and uh, how to be your, your true honest self. And that's what a lot of people have been saying they've been seeing of their co-workers is a bit more of their life outside of work, which is interesting. People get to be a bit more honest about who they are, perhaps, which is cool. So I just thought I'd drop that in there as something that I've been uh, seeing as a bit of a trend uh, in conversations on social. I think it's an interesting one in um, in the context of things like the, the US election and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that as well, because actually... I think sometimes you don't realise how hampered you are until you're free of something. And so I think if you if you take something like, you know, the kind of the US election and obviously the reaction to that, I think sometimes you might not realise how curbed by politics, whether that's global politics or organisational politics that you know you have become or by your organisational culture or by a mean boss or a mean colleague um, until you're free of that situation as well so I think a lot of us might sit there and think that we feel comfortable but actually you know there are forces around that make you feel uncomfortable so I think it's that kind of um, you know do you do you know what you know and then you you don't know what you don't know so it's it's kind of a collaborative thing as well because actually what constitutes psychological safety um it is a real interesting one because it is very individual for all of us um and obviously the race thing is a really obvious factor in that as well depending on what your organizational culture it is like in terms of you know diversity and equality so i think it's a really fascinating area and you know something i would like to see more of on i agree i completely agree and um get commission somebody to write something for them for, for tj that would be good that, that would be a good idea actually i um i recently recorded a podcast interview about bullying and it sort of came up uh in that a little bit of course and um but maybe a piece overtly about that would be, would be good too yeah good stuff um, okay, this is a shorter news section for a number of reasons. Uh, lack of actual news, but also we've got incredibly busy schedules despite all this remote working. Um, Zoom stops for no man or woman. Uh, Kate, thank you ever so much for your time. Have a great day. We'll speak to you in December. Yeah, next month. Thank you. Hi, TJs. It's John here. Uh, recently, I talked to Max Dickens. He is the author of a new book called Improvise, Use the Secrets of Improv to Achieve Extraordinary Results at Work. Uh, he's also the director of Hoopla, the UK's first improvisation training school and London's first dedicated improv comedy theatre. Uh, we talked about 
all sorts of stand-up and improv-related things and how that can help you in business. Fear of failure, creativity, the importance of play as an adult. They're all on the table. It was a really good conversation. It's a topic which I think a lot of people... Uh, find a little bit frightening improvisation um, certainly I do uh, but it's brilliant hearing uh, someone so proficient at it uh, break it down about why it's so good and how it can help you uh, so I do hope you enjoy this one let's start with your new book improvise tell us about that yeah so my book improvise how the secrets of improv uh, can help you achieve extraordinary results at work are all about um, taking ideas, concepts, skills, mindsets from the world of stage improvisation and then applying it to real life and applying it to work. So people often think of improv as as shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway and performance, uh, but I define improv as the art of acting without a script. And while, of course, that often happens on a stage for entertainment, and that's a lot of people's immediate association I think we act without scripts in life all the time, and especially at work. So you think you're doing a pitch, you think you're managing a direct report. Any form of communication is improvisational. Collaboration, solving new problems, all these things require us to improvise. So I think this is not a niche skill set. I think it's even, if I be so bold, one of the absolutely core skill sets of anyone in the world of work at the moment. And through my business, which I'm co-director of, called Hoopla Impro, we're Europe's first improv training company, and we've got a comedy club in London Bridge as well. Um, and we teach people how to improvise. And in our in our corporate work, we work with companies all over the world, showing them how to do it too. And what we do is take these concepts, which I'm sure we'll explore, and we apply them for these companies to day-to-day challenges. So people might bring us in and say, hey, we need to get our brainstorms much more productive or, hey, um, we need some pitch training or, hey, um, we need to really make sure we get our teamwork on point and we take these concepts and uh, apply them and illustrate them in a series of experiential exercises. So improvisation is experiential learning and we find that is amazingly effective for people. And in the book, I share some of these exercises but also really lay out the, the concepts so people can see how they apply in their everyday life. Uh, very interesting that your comedy club's near London Bridge. That's where TJ's based. Um, I'm uh, I'm in Bristol, but the next time I'm down in the head office, I'll uh, I'll try and pop in. Great. Yeah. It's that, so stand up comedy, uh, let alone improvisation, it's the sort of thing that fills people, the vast majority of people, myself included, with dread. What are your tips to kind of get over fear of failure and particularly embarrassment, so people can unlock their creativity? Fear of failure. It to an extent, uh, is in is entirely natural in that we, we've got this brain that was meant to keep us safe on the savannah thousand years ago to all these physical threats. And it's sort of that fight or flight response is actually really useful. But now we're in an environment without those physical threats and we have social threats and that kind of fight or flight response, which is essentially what this fear response is, is often inappropriate and not based in any facts. So a lot of this is about, uh, firstly, uh, understanding that this fear of failure is is a shame response, a a social reaction 
that we've that we've learned and when we're aware of it we can do some things to combat it so the first step is fair is self-awareness and realizing that you are not an unconfident person you are a person who is having unconfident thoughts and that I think is quite an empowering idea because confidence is suddenly not a person an individual it's not an innate quality it's a learning uh, I should say a thinking strategy that we can learn and so improvisers have all sorts of ways of of thinking about this uh, in terms of performance but also you asked about creativity so maybe let's zoom in on that so if you think about our inner critic you're faced with a blank page or you're faced with creating anything your inner critic which we all have is is going to throw two massive thoughts at you right away the first one is great ideas are good right away and we bring in our judgment really early in that process and we think if our ideas aren't great right away then we're we're not creative and we're doing a terrible job Uh, another thought we have is that hey I must be original if I'm not being original then I'm not being creative and improvisers have have two different approaches here so if you look at the first thought great ideas are good right away is is completely untrue in reality if you look at the etymology if you like of any idea think of how many iterations it has how it evolves the input of others and you're going to get blocked up if you try and be brilliant right away so improvisers on stage to free themselves up of this burden to quieten this inevitable inner critic have this idea of let yourself be average now that seems like a real cop-out right like who wants to be average at work anywhere no one but what improvisers find if they if they let themselves be average that they'll end up getting this uh, this effect where um, there's a momentum in their creativity and complexity emerges from very simple beginnings but we don't let ourselves get into that momentum because we bring in our inner critic far too early so maybe a related thought here is is an imp- improv philosophy called yes and so this is probably what improv is best known for so yes and is all about accepting ideas and building on them and you can say yes and to yourself or to others we'll get on to others in a moment i'm sure but you have this idea pop up in yourself you can either decide to immediately judge it to bring in that inner critic or you can accept it and add something and build it and focus longer on divergent and exploration thinking and creating from abundance to come up with a big volume of solutions before we bring in that critic. And we will bring in that critic. But all the research suggests that originality, creativity is linked to how long you sit in that divergent phase, that uncritical phase, coming out with a large volume of potential solutions before you come in and get really critical. Now, I also said the other inner critic big thought is, God, I must be original. And we get this um, from culture. We, we think that artists, and, and they are often, are incredibly original. And so we must be right now. But if you, we find when we train beginner improvisers, they try and say the funniest thing or the cleverest thing they can think of. And they either block themselves by doing that, or they end up saying something quite derivative and quite, um, quite boring because they're trying too hard. So what we say to them is, hey, what I want you to focus on in this scene, in this class, is be obvious. And again, like let yourself be average, that seems like a real cop-out. Saying obvious things is boring, right? 
but what is obvious to you won't be obvious to someone else. And obvious is often where your talent lies, where your unique set of experiences and intuitions. And if you let yourself be obvious, you'll find that you become original as a side effect of that. And again, both these approaches, let yourself be average, be obvious, create from abundance and spending longer in that uncritical divergent mode as underlying both those thoughts really help quieten that inner critic and let people be more creative and rediscover that innate creativity that we had as children. So aside from, I mean, we've touched on some of this already, I think, but aside from obvious applications like role play, which is used a lot in business very successfully, how else can improvisation be used in business? For example, can you use uh, improv techniques to help you stay engaged while remote working, for example, which is something that a lot of people are going to find themselves doing, I think, maybe for the foreseeable future. Yeah, sure. So I'll get onto remote working in a moment because I think clearly that's a big challenge for everyone. But how else can improv be, be used in business to go to the first part of your question? I think the biggest thing we can do is focus on these core communication skills. Like I said, communication is improvisational, whether you're doing it on Zoom or whatever. And what we find when we work with businesses and work with business people is that they focus a lot on what they say in the communication. And there's clearly part of it, right, is how how you speak and your content. But there really are different ways to have personal impact. So how you respond to another person or to a moment can give you huge credibility and affects how you connect with them. Um, you can Another form of personal impact is that we say is how you transform them. So you can listen people into insight in coaching conversations. But what are the blockages between these two things, between reacting in the moment and to transforming people by how you show up is listening. And actually, improvisation, the cliche of it, it's all about being clever and funny off the cuff and what you say. But actually, it all begins with listening. And a lot of the book focuses on how you can become a really brilliant listener. And in improv, we have a slightly different definition of uh, listening to what people are often taught at work. So at work, we're often taught about active listening. If you think about the sort of things you do in active listening, um, it might be, you know, nodding, making sort of affirmative noises as they speak, uh, smiling, opening up your body language. You could do a lot of these things without genuinely listening to that person. How do you know if someone has really listened to you? It's what they do with what you said. So we define listening as the willingness to be changed. If you're truly listening, ideas will land on you and change your response. So if you're listening to this now and you want to be a better listener, ask yourself, when someone's speaking, are you really listening or are you waiting to respond? Forming a script in your head of what you're going to say next, wrestling the conversation back to where you want it to go, or are you staying really present with that person, listening to the last word they say, letting the, their words change your response? If you do, you'll really connect and you'll be more adaptive to them and you'll have much stronger effects. So in a sense... How can we get better at work with improv? It comes down to becoming firstly an amazing listener. And we do a lot of work with that in workshops. Uh, And these exercises are a really fun way to teach listening because they're engaging exercises. And also you realize the barriers that people come up against with all these things. Um, So to answer the second part of your question now, how how can we get better at remote working with improv? 
Well, the challenge we've got is that we're all staring at the four wall, same four walls all the time now. We can't bounce off people. We used to chat with colleagues, you know, and um, feed off their energy. We used to get different stimulus all the time. So if you're feeling flat, if you're feeling uncreative, it's because you're having to entirely generate the creativity yourself and we can't feed off uh, other people. So what what can we do about this? Well, we we try and talk a lot about play in improv. And the reason why we talk about play is that um, improvisers have learned through experience, because improv is taught in games, that games help people relax their inner critic and that critical inner voice. It distracts the voice. So if you can gamify, if you like, how you're coming up with ideas, not only will you get different sorts of solutions and more lateral solutions, you'll also find your critic and your confidence your critic is more under control and your confidence goes up just almost through a side door through how you can use um, games. So I'm very happy to share some, some games with everyone today that you can, you can try um, immediately at home because I think this is, a, you know, let's leave you some tips. Um, one is let yourself be wrong, we call this. So rather, rather than trying to come up with a great solution quickly, we often will do an exercise called turbocharge your brainstorm. And this is all about deadlines and setting yourself targets that really force you to, to think outside the box. So say to yourself, when you're working from home, right, I'm going to come up with 50 ideas in five minutes in, in, in answer to this brief. If I'm going to try and solve this problem, 50 ideas in five minutes. What that will do by gamifying that a little bit is it will stop you judging your ideas. Another exercise you can do is ask yourself, well, what's the wrong answer here? And that takes off all pressure to be right. And what you often find is that by thinking about the wrong answer, the right answer comes up. Uh, another one is identity theft. So get into a different mindset of another character, another person. So pick your favorite creative. It can be anyone you want. It can be a film director. It can be a fashion designer. It can be a, a, a creative business person. Ask yourself, if I borrowed their perspective, how would they solve it? Or pick a brand. What's a brand you really admire? Maybe it's Apple. Maybe it's Deliveroo. How would they approach this brief? Um, so there are very simple exercises there that you can use to make your creative process that little bit more creative by making it more playful. And so it's play doesn't have to be childish. Play is about how can we get a better outcome or a better solution by designing our process in a more fun and engaging way. And a lot of that comes from our heritage or my heritage, especially in improvisation. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to play in a minute, but just to, to go back to something you said earlier, from my own experience, I a few years ago, I had sort of several important speaking engagements in uh, a, a few months so I had my best not my best man speech my, my my own groom speech I had a speaking engagement at a football club and then I had and I was doing some stand-up comedy as well so I took uh, speaking lessons I took public speaking lessons wow. and that was one of the first things they said was you you kind of have to get over yourself you have to we're, we're all our our worst critic you know and um it's definitely interesting to hear you say these things that tally exactly with what the person that was teaching me public speaking was saying that we you just kind of have to let go and be prepared to make mistakes and all that sort of thing yeah i mean I, th that's really interesting and so we often talk about mistakes 
use the word mistakes there. We talk about mistakes a lot in improv. If you think about communications, if we tie it into public speaking, people often think that, oh, I've got to be perfect here. Your goal is not to be perfect. Your goal is to communicate, and they're very different things. And a lot of people who we regard as good communicators are very rough and ready around the edges. And there's nothing more charismatic than owning your mistakes. So we, we try and treat mistakes as gifts uh, in, impro- in improv and almost double down on them and almost make the stumble part of the dance, but use it as a resource. And mistakes can be a great way to connect with an audience. I always remember someone told me a story about Frank Sinatra and that he would deliberately put his tie on wrong before he went out to sing so that when he got on stage, he could go, oh my God, I've put my tie on wrong and go, oh, I'm an idiot and, and connect with the audience like that because he was so high status, but using that almost manufactured error to create relationships. So if you, how you own mistakes as well affects how you impact an audience. And we always say in improv, the audience is with you until you push them away. And how can we push them away? We can push them away in our level of energy. We can push them away in how we're using our body language. We can push them away in how we handle our moments of error and our mistakes. Are we kind of going in a vortex into that shame response? Or are we owning it and almost doubling down on it and trying to treat it as a, as a fun thing in itself? Coming on to our last question, we're going to go back to play, I think. So as children, uh, it's something we almost exclusively do, especially, obviously, when you're younger. And the the accepted thinking for most people is that it kind of, this kind of tapers off as you get older, you get, you get fewer chances to do it, you get fewer reasons to do it. But everyone says that it's something that, it's an aspect of your personality or your work life or your home life that, that should be carried on for for health, for kind of mental health sake or creativity's sake or for productivity's sake. Have you got any advice about how to kind of generate playfulness as, as adults or, or the importance of it and how improvisation can help with this? I think a big part of it is how we think of what professionalism is and what professional looks like. And I see this all the time. I call it business schizophrenia. So I might work with a with a leader or with a group of people, and their their backstage self, if you like, is really fun and relaxed and engaging. And then when they go into work mode, their front stage self, if you like, they think they have to be a certain sort of person to be taken seriously. And I think how we how we work in the world of work and how we present ourselves is based in a in a heritage of seriousness that actually we haven't actually prodded or or beaten up too much. Why what are we getting out of this? Now clearly there is a time to be absolutely very serious, but I think we can be a lot more relaxed and a lot more playful in how we approach all sorts of things. And a lot of it is how we frame it. So firstly, if you want to connect with an audience, if you, if you present your personality authentically and you're playful, you're going to connect with them better. So you're going to get a better result. You're going to get better impact. And shouldn't professionalism be about impact, not about how, what your inverted commas meant to do? And then another way of thinking about play is, and we touched on it earlier, but you're in a room with people or you're managing a team and you want to get an innovative solution, an innovative output, or a culture that is more likely to make those ideas emerge. And that culture 
what I think we can intuitively attach to is likely to be a playful culture. It's a, a culture where people are going to be unafraid to pitch and share ideas, where they're going to take risks, where they're going to take slightly unusual approaches to solving problems. We all want to work in places like that and we get better outcomes. So a lot of it is how we label it, how you present play. Play is not people wasting money playing ping pong. That isn't, that, that you know, one understanding of play. But play at work is how can we be and show up here and organize our time so we can get more creativity out of all of us? And if you explain it like that, I think people get on board with it and business people can start to see more of a return. So we've talked about how you can get more play into your life. I mean, one thing if you're a manager, for example, is how you set up the space, how you're managing your group of people. Is it an emotional culture where people fear failure or is it one where we call it a yes and culture, where ideas are heard and accepted and built on and and judgment is delayed? You set in that kind of emotional culture. And if you're an individual, how can you get more play into your life? And a lot of it is about breaking habits. And we talked about that habit of how we think about work and how we think about what professionalism means just then. But we have all sorts of other habits at work. So I just want to leave some practical things that people can do. And I expand on these a lot more in the book. But one is just trying something different. So that's a real simple thing everyone can do to get more spontaneity into their life, whether it be walking to work a different way, listening to a totally different podcast, although always listen to this one, obviously, whether it be reading a totally different book, trying a completely different recipe, talking to a different sort of person, try something different, a very simple, practical way to get more playful. Other one is to set totally new goals. So our brain is an amazing thing. And if you are always pursuing the same goals, you're not going to get very spontaneous new solutions out of that. So what could you do to set a completely different goal? People often talk about moonshot goals, right? So what if rather than improving revenue by 10% this year, we had to improve it by 500%? What sort of ideas would that throw up? Again, it's, it's almost a thought experiment, that sort of outcome. Again, a playful response. So set different sorts of goals, set ridiculously ambitious goals as a thought experiment. Another thing you can do is ask yourself different questions. So again, we get stuck in habits of thought when we're always answering and asking ourselves the same questions. So I wanted to leave with another practical tip, that a thing that someone could do right now, and I use this technique all the time, it's called question storming. So what you can do is break down the problem you're trying to solve into a series of questions. And if you want to do this with a team, ask them, I want everyone to come up with 10 questions on this. How can we break up this this topic? So um, once you've broken it down and come up with not solutions, but say 30 different questions on this problem, what you'll find is each question opens up your thinking in a different way and you're going to get more uh, spontaneous, innovative responses from that. So those are three practical things you can do. set yourself new goals, uh, try something different and and this question storming idea. And like I say, the reason why I wanted to introduce specifics here is play doesn't have to be abstract. It doesn't have to be making pasta drawings or paintings like we did at school. It can be super practical and play is about breaking yourself out of habits of thought. And there are very specific and non-woo-woo ways we can do that.
Well, Max, thanks ever so much for your time and uh, good luck with Improvise. It's all it's available now from all good and evil book stores. <laughs> Hopefully I'll get to your comedy club when I'm in London next. Uh, aside from that, yeah, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. And if anyone wants to find out more, the book's called Improvise. Use the six of improv to achieve extraordinary results at work. You can find me on LinkedIn. My name's Max Dickens and also Hoopla, H-O-O-P-L-A, impro.com is where we're at if you fancy taking a class or fancy uh, seeing what we might be able to help you with. Okay, now we come to the, um, I don't even know what we call this section. Joe, what do we call it? <laughs> the, the content section, the website section. Yeah. I don't know, maybe we should come up with a name after all these months. Yeah, un- answers <laughs> on a postcard, answers on an email, um, answers on our Instagram. So yeah, this is the section where we talk about uh, the content from TJ and other things around that. I've just recorded a new section where we didn't actually have any news. Uh, so Joe, we're going to have a content section where we don't talk about any content. Well, you know I can talk ad infinitum anyway, so that's probably not a problem. But I do think we do have some good content, to be fair. Well, of course, we've got plenty of good content on site, off and on platform, as they say. Um, but before we get into that, let's do an official introduction. Joe Cook from Lightbulb Moments. How's it going? Well, hello. Lovely to be here. Uh, and in the in England, not even the UK, but in England, we're in lockdown two. Uh, we are post presidential elections in the US, so it's it's an interesting time. Maybe we shouldn't talk about those things, and we should just focus on that content. What do you think? I mean, it's a weakness of mine to uh, obsess over both the US election and the lockdown. Uh, so it's going to be hard, but uh, let's get through this. Uh, we What's can... our first piece, John? Our first piece is called How to Build a Learning Culture for 2020 and Beyond. And it's from Dean Corbett, Chief People Officer of Avado Learning. Um, he's basically talking, well, the, the the content is there in the title. That's um, it's very SEO friendly, you see. Um, <laughs> it's almost like you know how to do your job really well. <laughs> well, I hope so. Um, essentially, the, the, uh, the thrust of it is... Dean is basically saying the most important things here are connecting people, I think, to mm-hmm. and making them able to share what they've enjoyed in, in terms of learning. A lot a lot of the content of this piece, I think, is are things which, pandemic or not, you should be doing anyway to create a successful learning culture. Um, as companies grow in size, you could probably say that that gets more difficult because people work in, I really don't like the word silos, but I've just used it. Uh, Joe, what do you think? Agreed. And I think, you know, I've seen this in a lot of businesses as they grow, that suddenly the CEO who used to chat to everyone suddenly doesn't get to talk to someone unless he bumps into them in the kitchen once a month. Um, and and I think it's really interesting how things change and adapt. And then suddenly you need processes and policies and, and all these kind of things. And a lot of that is really good because you need people to work certain ways. But that silo, as you say, can then kind of break down a lot of the the work process. It can make things longer. It can be kind of feeling like decision by committee. Um, and they, you get a lot of those negative things that come with it. And what I really like in this piece is it's kind of relatively high level talking about some of these things and about how we need to connect with each other through virtual interactive sessions um, and also kind of making sure that we're protecting people's mental and physical well-being. Um, So lots of different things been picked up on there. 
yeah i agree it's quite high level and and also a lot of it is um i'm using a lot of words i don't like today uh common sense as well which is which is the most uh, <laughs> it's the most subjective term i used to have a have a yeah a manager that said common sense ain't all that common well that's uh, that's possibly true but um my my question about this article is uh, i understand the idea of looking for skills within your company before looking elsewhere i think that's very sensible and it sort of speaks to um the idea of the uh, L&D manager as facilitator rather than kind of command and control. However, um, if you do look within your company for someone with the right skills, the example they give is uh, someone from finance teaching people how to use Excel. Um, by the way, this is an open call for Excel lessons. I'm terrible with Excel. Um, but uh, would these people be able to impart their knowledge in a way that would make people learn the most, most effectively? Do you see what I'm, you know? Do you know what I'm saying? It's good to look well, internally. Absolutely. It's good to look internally, but sometimes it's maybe not the best thing to do. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think the the idea of looking internally is is amazing because the people who are working within a company already know the organization, uh, the whatever it is the organization does. In theory, they know about that already. And and they have a certain element of the culture of whatever is going on in that industry already. The flip side is they've got something about that culture already, <laughs> as opposed to I know when I've been new in organisations, and I think this is actually one of my first ever articles I wrote for Training Journal magazine about what you bring with you when you're new, that freshness, that different approach, that objectivity. So it's about what's most important for that role in that business at that time. Is it to have... Um, development for somebody's career in a way that they want to go, utilising the skills they have and developing them and keeping that tacit knowledge that they have within that organisation? Or is it about bringing in the new skills that you need along with that freshness and that objectivity and different experience to make um, basically a more diverse and interesting workforce? So as long as you're doing it for the right reason, I think that can be absolutely great. Yeah, I agree. And um good way to cut that one off i think um moving on to our next piece which is called compliance and ethics training it's not just about bad apples professor guido palazzo uh, addresses systemic corruption and the importance of compliance across the board so you know you often see compliance training companies uh talking about how not to make it boring and blah 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 but aside from how not to make it boring or interesting um Professor Palazzo is talking about how to make it more applicable to basically everyone for for the reasons that he lays out. Um, have you ever worked anywhere where there's been systemic corruption, Joe? Oh, uh, that's an interesting question. Well, apart from light bulb moment, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> actually, yes, I have. Um, oh wow! And thinking about it, way back in in my career history, my um, I'd left by then, but the CEO basically ran off with the wages um yeah honestly um so, so yes i have and no amount of eat learning um or compliance tick box training would have stopped that person doing that thing because they were inherently corrupt i guess you know <laughs> you you don't run off with the wages if you're not corrupt i guess so gosh i haven't thought about that in a few years john 
I mean, I brought it up as a joke, but it, that's uh, quite amazing that you have. But then this is exactly his point in the article is, is most people are like, oh, this isn't that sort of workplace. You know, it doesn't happen around here. And that's how you get blindsided for these things to happen. The quote I pulled out in the piece, which, um, uh, which I think kind of sums it up well is, uh, he says, if you made a list of the character traits of a rule breaker in an organisation and then compared it to the average manager or, or executive, you'd find a huge amount of overlap. In most cases, they're just like anyone else in the organisation. Now, that quote isn't to tar everyone who's a manager with the brush of being corrupt. No, 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 not but at all. It, the point is that it's a slippery slope in terms of how little things can be abused and how they can't be picked up on. I think. I yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, what I would have loved in that article is is what are those two lists? Because, yeah. you know, I was I was thinking about it myself and I was like, well, is it around for instance something like um independent thinking, entrepreneurship, independence? You know, these are all good traits that you want in in maybe a manager, maybe not the entrepreneurship, but you know, that's the kind of the thinking that you want. And is that the slippery slope into I'll do what I want, when I want, whatever it takes, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder if that's what the article is talking about. I mean, there's a lot to kind of take in here, I think. Um... So I think a really nice paragraph from the article to wrap this up is where it says the danger of blaming bad apples for fraud and misconduct is that it also provides a very convenient way for us to detach from them and tell ourselves it could never happen here, or I could never behave like that. This attitude is risky because the whole point about ethical blindness is that it emerges from stressful situations in which sound judgments no longer prevails. Yeah, that is uh, the perfect way to wrap it up, I think. So uh, do give that a read. Uh, Professor Guido Palazzo, Academic Director at Executive Education HEC Lausanne uh, and Director of the Centre's new Ethics and Compliance Certificate of Advanced Studies. So uh, quite the credentials. Do give it a read from 4th of November, earlier this month. Uh, So our final piece, um, we're going to focus on our new blogger, Jane Daly, uh, Jane Daly, Yay. yeah. So uh, she used to be uh, global head of L and D for M and S. She also um, was an integral part of Towards Maturity uh, for many, many years. Um, now she, who are now Emerald Works. Who are now Emerald Works, indeed. Um, she's now launched two companies, People Star and People Who Know, um, both platforms to bring people in the learning world together, live their best work life. She's got loads of great resources, her own podcast as well. Um, yeah, really good stuff. Yeah, she's she's just a great person to to know and be involved with, I think. And uh, this is her first blog post for TJ. So it's very exciting um, having her on board. It's called, the, the blog is entitled The Learning Coach. And the first post uh, is called A Desire to Help. And uh, it's basically about, well, this is it. It's about how, who is the L&D department helping and how, are they helping them in future? Um, the quote that I'm going to jump off on is, uh, another consideration is to make sure that any help offered is grounded in the need to nudge but not to control. There is a fine line between saying what you think and telling someone what to think or, in fact, what to learn. Oh, oh, I love that. Really yes. love that. I think it's a, it's about our whole um, attitude and, and ethos, Um and you might have said that word already. And and so I know, for instance, a lot of people on like a personal level with maybe their partner, for instance, it can be very easy to say, do this, or I think you should react this way. And 
And I think it's much better to be kind of like to listen, to understand, to support and let people have their own learning journey and get to maybe the point where you were thinking, well, this is obvious, but they get there themselves. And it's so much more powerful. People own it so much more. And I think this is where we get into kind of designing learning experiences, which I know a lot of people hate that terminology. But the whole idea, like in one of my training courses, I always highlight, you know, I could have told you X in 30 seconds, or we could have spent a couple of minutes unpacking it. But actually, we've spent 10 or 12 minutes doing an activity and having a discussion so that you get to this conclusion, if in in fact, that's where you get to. Because it's much more powerful than me just saying blah, 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 because you're involved in having that discussion as a group. And I think that's what Jane is talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it comes down to, not coercion is the wrong word. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe. Who knows? I I don't know what her second blog post is going to be like. Well, that's when you use use training for evil (laughs) rather than good. (laughs) Strap them in the chair. And um, yeah, so, but it's about facilitation. It's about getting the best out of people, making them find the best in themselves I think and uh... but but Jane also does go on to say in the very next paragraph too much help can also foster dependency and you need to get that balance right um and and she goes on to expand on that and and that balance is really important because like with what I was just saying with you know maybe your partner or your, your kids or you're saying do this the more you say do this the less they think the less they feel the less that they come up with something and then they're dependent on you just saying do this all the time yeah. and that's obviously what we don't want in L&D another thing that uh, Jane talks about which they do in which they have done in towards maturity and also do at Emerald Works is talking about high value organizations so the idea of kind of mapping what you do onto the best practices of bigger companies and companies you've got who are, who are really quite advanced on the learning curve um, and talk about so the, the example that she pulls up is Brewdog uh, yeah, so she talks about higher value companies who are adaptable, flexible and innovative. And uh, I just think it's interesting that, that this is quite a constant uh, through her work is that you look to the bigger companies and try to emulate the best practices of what mm-hmm. they've done. And so, yeah, it's just a great opening uh, post to set her stall out for what she's going to be talking yeah. about with TJ and uh, excited about the next one. Yeah, looking forward to more of that. So those are the three pieces from this month. Uh, Next month, what have we got in the locker? We've got trust. Uh, We've got a piece about sustainability, resilience. Uh, We've got a couple of, uh, we're getting quite a lot of uh, book reviews coming in. So, um, Oh, good. Well, there are so many good L&D books out there. They're coming through thick and fast. They are, aren't they? Um, I'm getting, yeah, a lot of approaches. I think people have been busy during lockdown um, Mm. or busy during during 2020 as a whole, really, kind of spending some time getting their thoughts on paper, uh, which is really, really good. Uh, They'll obviously be in December. It's the last month of the year, thank God, um, (laughs) (laughs) to be honest with you. Um, So there's going to be a lot of roundup pieces. We're going to be talking about the, the best content from the year, what we can look forward to next year as well. So exciting. Fantastic. Well, I'm not only looking forward to the end of 2020, like most people, but also looking forward to next month and some more content discussion with you, John. Absolutely. Uh, Joe. it's been a pleasure as always, and I will speak to you very, very soon. Absolutely.
The TJ Podcast is hosted by John Kennard, Joe Cook and Kate Graham. It's produced by me, John Kennard, and mixed and edited by Digital Skills People. Title music is by The Ledger All-Stars featuring Yolanda. The sponsorship music is by Audio Nautics and is used under a Creative Commons licence. TJ is a publishing title owned by Dodds Group PLC.